0: beautiful day. Often when we are uh, in the park as we're preparing our sermons, we're thinking it's going to be hot, you got to keep it short, but today is beautiful. So buckle up. We're going to be here for a while. No, I'm kidding. Well, I hope not. I hope not. I'm starting my timer right now to help me out. But it is a beautiful day and it's, I just we have to just be so grateful for this time in the park you know i just uh it's easy to take it for granted and yet it is just an incredible blessing to be able to meet here to be reminded of god's goodness and his glory even just as we're as we're looking out so even if nothing that i say is very good this morning you certainly have nothing to complain about this is a fantastic fantastic view uh you can turn over to deuteronomy 16 we'll get there in a second I'm uh, actually really excited about uh, what I have to share this morning. Um, We're going to be looking at a quality of God's character that I believe that each of us wants more of in our lives, no matter where we're at. This is a quality that when we possess it, it makes other people want to be around us. It's a quality that when we embody it, it makes people feel more loved, makes them feel more at peace. It will make you a great person to work with or to work for. It's one of the hallmarks of genuine spirituality. This quality is joy, is joy. We're talking about this morning is a life of joy. You know, when Paul is talking about the, the characteristics of God's character that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit helps to produce in our lives in Galatians 5. The second one that he mentions is joy. He says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and so on. You know, if I were to summarize the life of a Christian, I would say that what we do is love, why we do it is faith, but how we do it is joy. What we do is love, why we do it is faith. How we do it, how we go about our lives is joy. The attitude that a follower of Jesus takes with them as they encounter the various aspects of their life is an attitude of joy. And you know, I think this really makes sense because one of the ways to define Christian joy, and we're going to talk about two aspects of joy this morning, but one of the ways to define Christian joy is the condition of a heart that is engaged in worship. Heart, the the a heart that is that is engaged in worship of God is a heart that is full of joy. It's very difficult, I would say even impossible, to worship God without coming from a place fundamentally of joy. And that doesn't mean that we're always feeling happy, but it's a place of joy that approaches God in worship. So this morning we're gonna, I wanna talk about two two points about joy, but we're going to look at three different contexts in which this happens. First, we're going to look at the way that joy played the role, the, the role that joy played in the communal life of Israel. So we're going to be in Deuteronomy 16. As a reminder, you're hopefully turning there. We're going to get there in a second. So we're going to look at, at the joy in the, the life of Israel. Second, we're going to look at Jesus' example of joy. And then third, we're going to look at the way that Paul, Paul followed Jesus' example, and we're going to look at the book of Philippians, okay? So we're going to look at Deuteronomy, then we're going to look at a couple of scriptures about Jesus, and then we're going to look at Philippians. But it all is really under this header of joy. And overall, the two points that I think we're going to see in all three places is that, for the, on the first part, that the way that we accomplish God's work in our lives is joy and not toil. The way that we accomplish God's work in our lives is joy and not toil. That's the first thing we're going to see. And then the second thing we're going to see is that our joy as Christians is focused on God's character and not on our situation. Our joy is focused on God's character and not on our situation. Okay, so you guys with me? You know, this is what we're covering. This is where we're going. roadmap. Uh, Deuteronomy is just, it's really just a couple of speeches of Moses that he gives to the Israelites before they enter the promised land. And kind of as a reminder, if you're less familiar with the scriptures, so Moses led the people out of Egypt. They went into the desert. They made it right to the edge of the promised land that God had promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then their hearts kind of grew faint and they doubted and said, oh, you know, we want to go back to Egypt. And so on account of their lack of faith, they had to wander in the desert for 40 years until that generation died and their children rose up to take their place. And so then now they're about to come back into the promised land. Really, they're making their second attempt at entering the promised land. And so God had given them this covenant while they, when they first left Egypt, but now this is a new generation. And so they need to kind of be reminded of the covenant that God had given to their parents. And so this is why we have the book of Deuteronomy Deuteronomy literally means Deuter is second or two, and Nomi is law. So this is the second giving of the law. And this is really, it's the giving of the law to this next generation as they go into the promised land. So this is a a speech, really, most of it is just a a long speech that Moses gives. And we're going to look in in chapter 16, where Moses is telling them how to uh, carry out the three main religious festivals that they're going to be following as a people. Passover, The festival of weeks, which is also we know as Pentecost, and the festival of tabernacles. And so uh, we're gonna just read this, uh, we're gonna read 1 to 17, but I'll kind of break up while we're going through there. So this is Moses speaking to the people. He says, Observe the month of Aviv. This is the first month of the Jewish year. This would have taken place in springtime, say it was March, something like that. He says, And celebrate the Passover of the Lord your God, because in the month of Aviv, He brought you out of Egypt by night. Sacrifice as the Passover to the Lord your God, an animal from your flock or herd at the place the Lord will choose as a dwelling for his name. Notice they've all got to get together to one place. He says the place they're going to choose once they get into the land, and they do this this sacrifice together. Verse three, do not eat it with bread made with yeast, but for seven days eat unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, because you left Egypt in haste. And Exodus mentions that as they leave Egypt, they were in a hurry because, you know, God has said, okay, quick, get out of Egypt. And so they didn't have time to prepare food, which is why they ate bread without yeast. All right, so we'll keep reading. So that all the days of your life you may remember the time of your departure from Egypt. Let no yeast be found in your possession in all your land for seven days. Do not let any of the meat you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain until morning. You must not sacrifice the Passover in any town the Lord, your gives you, the Lord your God gives you, except in the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. There you must sacrifice the Passover in the evening when the sun goes down on the anniversary of your departure from Egypt. Roast it and eat it at the place the Lord your God will choose. Then in the morning, return to your tents. For six days, eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day, hold an assembly to the Lord your God and do no work. He's describing a week-long community camping trip in Jerusalem for the people in, in March. You know, it's, a, it's probably nicer. If we did it in March here, it'd probably be a little cold. This is Israel. It's a little warmer. It's actually probably not a bad time to be sleeping outside uh, in March. But when you see, so God is setting up this communal calendar for his people. And he says that in the spring, right at the beginning of the year, the first thing they're going to do is to get together and remember where they came from. And he says, I love how he says, all the days of your life, so that all the days of your life you may remember the time of your departure from Egypt. God says all the days of your life I want to remember I want you to remember where you came from. Why? Because God knows that gratitude, the gratitude that comes from understanding where they came from is going to change the way that they see the rest of the year. Right? The fields that you're going to need to plow and to plant, the animals you're going to have to shear and to shepherd the hard work of providing for and taking care of your family, these aren't a burden to you. They are an incredible blessing. Remember where you were, how I rescued you from the land of Egypt. That sets the context for their year. Let's keep reading. Verse 9, count off seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the standing grain. And traditionally, this count started on the, on the day after Passover. So, Passover was, you know, they would sacrifice the lamb. That was also traditionally kind of the first time where they would get a harvest, and so they would have something to obviously celebrate with, but they are also then starting this count of seven weeks. Verse 10, then celebrate the festival of weeks, this is after the seven weeks are counted, to the Lord your God by giving a freewill offering in proportion to the blessings the Lord your God has given you, and rejoice before the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name, you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, the Levites in your towns and the foreigners, the fatherless and the widows living among you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and follow carefully these decrees. So God says, count seven weeks. So this is now, If we started in March. Now we're at late spring or early summer. This is maybe May or June. And he says, okay, now that you've had your, your harvest, so you gather your crops in, but before you start planting for another harvest, before you kind of keep... You know, doing all the work that needs to get done. And trust me, in a society like this, there's tons of work that needs to get done. He says, Stop, get together once again, all of you, everyone together, and rejoice in my presence at what God has done in your life. I love how inclusive his instruction is. He says, You, your sons and daughters, your servants, all the foreigners that are among you, the fatherless, the widows, everyone should be there and should rejoice. Let's keep reading. Verse 13. Celebrate the festival of tabernacles for seven days after you've gathered the produce of your threshing floor and your wine press. So now this is the threshing floor and the wine press. This is going to be grapes and and kind of the late harvest. So this is now into the fall. So this is now September or October. It says, be joyful at your festival, you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levites, the foreigners, the fatherless, and, and the widows who live in your towns. For seven days, celebrate the festival to the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and in all the work of your hands, and your joy will be complete. Three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose. At the festival of unleavened bread, the festival of weeks, and the festival of tabernacles. No one should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. So he's saying, once again now, so you had this... uh, really celebration of what God, the gratitude of God bringing them out of slavery in March. And then really the celebration of of joy before the Lord, this pause of work and joy before the Lord in May or June. And then another celebration where you stop everything and get together for a week again in September or October. And again, celebrate what God has done. Rejoice in God's blessings. So I see in this, really two important emphases that God is trying to help the people to understand. The first is that God wants his people to embrace joy instead of toil, to enjoy freedom from the slavery that you can fall into, to busyness in their lives. The temptation as people is to fill our schedules ever more full with activities, with work, with errands, we can pack our schedules ever tighter and feel like we're accomplishing more because of it. But God says, no, this, this just leads to frantic, hairy lives that are characterized by stress. God called His people to fight against that by stopping what they're doing, by getting together and away from what they were uh, all of you know the, the work that, that is sitting in front of them, to get away, to be together and to rejoice in His presence. The way that we accomplish God's work is in joy and not in toil. It's not by us doing more and packing our schedules ever more full and and, and just doing that one more thing and that one more thing and that one more thing. God says, no, 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 that's not the point. We can do less and do it with joy and we will accomplish more for God. The second emphasis that I see in God calling his people here to focus on on joy is that it gets their minds off of the dissatisfaction that you can sometimes feel with results in your life. We can enjoy freedom from the slavery to results. You know, this is going to be an annual festival, and hey, sometimes the crops are great, and sometimes they're not so great. But God's command, his command is that no matter how your crops are, and he he does include here, he says, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to bless you. Don't you worry about that. But you're going to have good years and bad years. You know, th- your neighbor might do better than you. He might do worse than you. There are going to be different things going on, but still you choose to rejoice. And he even says that, that the foreigners, the fatherless, the widows, those who have nothing in your society, they can come and rejoice as well. Because the rejoicing is not because my life is, is you know, when I, when I look around, I, I, I feel so much better off than my neighbors, or, you know, I can count all my blessings and how rich I feel. The rejoicing is because God is so good, and what he's done is so good in their lives. Joy is focused on God's character, not on our situation. You guys see that? So I think this is what we see in in, in the way that God builds the festivals into the calendar of Israel. We start with gratitude, dedicating this time for rejoicing as a community, rejecting the idols of, of work and of stress, rejecting the idol of results and leading lives that are full of joy. Okay, let's look at Jesus's example as well. And we're gonna see the same thing, no surprise. So you can look at in uh, Luke 15, we'll look at this and then we'll look at a couple of other small scriptures. But you know, if I were to ask you to make a list of the characteristics of Jesus, I'm sure many of us would probably say love, or we would say compassion, or we would say you know, that he was uh, a person of strong character, honesty, peace, maybe. I'm not sure how many of us would put joy near the top of that list. You know, we think of Jesus' love, we think of his compassion. Do we think so much of his joy? And yet when Jesus speaks the parables that he gives and even the way that he talks to his disciples, he actually talks about joy quite a bit. And we see his joy again and again. This is just one example in Luke 15. In verse one, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels. And the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he goes on and tells, of course, the, the parable of the prodigal son and how the, the father welcomes him home with joy. And really, you know, joy is kind of the whole point of these parables, right? Jesus is telling the religious leaders that, that they view people with cynicism and bitterness and really as burdens, right? These are people who are projects that the religious leaders need to feel like they need to get fixed because they're making a mess of things. But Jesus says, I view them differently. I rejoice over them as they return to God. In Jesus's mind, joy is the attitude with which we accomplish God's work, not toil. The religious leaders viewed the people around them as a bunch of work, as a bunch of toil that was waiting for their attention. Jesus saw them with joy. And I think this is partly why we see Jesus holding up children throughout his ministry, right? Throughout his ministry, you see again and again, Jesus, he points to the kids and says, you know, you need a heart like this, or come, let the children come and and be with me. And this is one of the great things about the children's, children's classes and teaching the children's classes is that, I mean, you just see the hearts of the kids and they are full of joy. Now, not always joy, as any parent will tell you, sometimes a lot of other things, But I would say they also they have a lot more joy. There's a lot more joy there than there is here. No offense but you you know what I'm saying. The unbridled joy of a five-year-old is incredible and you see them. I mean we we did when Lauren and I were teaching one of the classes we started off by having the kids doing a staring contest and who could who could uh, stare the longest without smiling first And the kids were just like dying laughing. I mean, they just cannot help it, but just be like cracking up and just at at nothing, right? I mean, just at looking at each other's faces. And it's, I mean, they're much worse at that game than we are, but maybe that says something about their hearts, right? They're much closer to joy than we are, but I think that is what Jesus sees. This is also one of the things that I love about the portrayal of Jesus in the, uh, the series The Chosen. I don't know if you guys have seen that, but it is a great series, and we've talked about it a few times. But one of the things that I think sets the portrayal of Jesus in that series apart from others that I've seen is that no matter what Jesus is doing, whether he's being stern or compassionate or he's publicly challenging the authorities or he's healing a leper, behind whatever kind of emotion that he's going through at a time, there is this undercurrent of joy in everything that he does. And it's one of the things that I really love, and I think feels most authentic to the scriptures about that show, is that Jesus, no matter what he's doing, is full of joy. You know, in in John 15, you don't have to turn there, but we see how Jesus' intention is that we, his followers, would share in his joy. In verse 9, it says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you. Interesting. And that your joy may be complete. Why did Jesus give us his teachings? I mean, there's of course a lot of reasons. But one of the things that he says explicitly, he gave us his teachings so that the joy that he has would be in us that the same way that he was defined as so different from the world around him, by being full of joy, that that would be the way that we are too. And I think as we really meditate and, and let his teachings sink into us, that is the effect that they will have. And that is the effect that the Holy Spirit will have on our hearts. One last verse about Jesus, and then we'll move on to Philippians. And I'll just, that'll just be real quick. But one of the things that I I love, the the verses that I love about Jesus that I just I I feel like I had to mention today is in Hebrews 12 and verse 2, where the writer of Hebrews is describing Jesus' attitude in approaching the cross. And he says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, which is, I think, such an incredible statement about Jesus' heart. That he endured the cross. He scorned its shame, not in annoyance, not in frustration but from a place of joy. Jesus was motivated by joy as he went, even through the agony of the cross. It wasn't about the situation that he was in. It wasn't because his life was so peaceful. It was because he was so grateful. And so so able to rejoice in participating in the plan of God for the world. That's what moved his heart to rejoice. Jesus' joy was focused on God's character, not on his situation. Okay, now we'll look real quickly at Philippians. So you can turn there. I'll just reference a couple things. But I just want to show you that this isn't just, it's not just Jesus who can do this, right? But I think Paul is actually a great example of this. He's in prison here in Philippi. He's in a what we would describe as a terrible situation. <laughs> his life is, is being threatened. And here he talks about, I mean, the, the whole letter of Philippians, you can read it. It's just, he's talking about rejoicing all the time. I mean, constantly. He's, he's overjoyed. He's thrilled with what's going on. It's like, Paul, do you know what's happening to you? But he's thrilled. Verse three, chapter one, verse three. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day of until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The challenges that Paul is facing, the, the, the things that are going on in the people around him, those aren't toilsome and frustrating. Paul's rejoicing because God is in control. Joy is the way we accomplish God's work, not, not, not toil. Verse 12, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, being thrown in prison unjustly, has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. So like he's saying, hey, the good preachers are doing what's good, but look what he says even about the, the bad preachers here. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. And you can imagine saying, and it's so frustrating that all these people are going around and messing up all the work that I've sacrificed my life to accomplish. Verse 18, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and for that I rejoice. How different his perspective from the one that maybe we'd be tempted to feel in that situation. Again, this is the attitude of joy that Jesus lived out. It's the attitude of joy that that God wants in all of our hearts. Paul's rejoicing in his imprisonment because God is using it to advance the gospel. He's rejoicing in people stirring up trouble in his ministry because Christ is being preached. Joy is how we accomplish God's work, not our toil. And then just, I mean, in chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, he says, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Again, he's in a terrible situation and yet rejoicing, rejoicing, rejoicing. So I'll just close with a question. How is your level of joy? Is your work defined by an attitude of joy? Or have you bought into the idea that you can accomplish God's work through your toil? Are you so impressed by God's character and what he's done in your life that you can't help but rejoice? Or is your dissatisfaction with the situation that you're in stolen your joy? You know, Lauren and I, uh, we have a pool. We're kind of new pool owners here. We're learning to take care of it, which is... A little complicated at times, I would say. There are these little test strips that you get to try to measure the water. It's like a little piece of paper. You dip it in the water and it turns colors and there's like four different things. It measures the chlorine and the total chlorine and the alkalinity. You got to be a chemist to make this work. I don't know how it works. And then you got to buy some chemicals and you dump it in at various times and and then the colors change and then it means that you're okay. But the idea is you know you you put the little test strip in the water every once in a while and you kind of test like are kids gonna get sick if they swim in this pool is basically the question and you know once you check it then it what you you know what you learn from the little test tells you how you can change your behavior to try to like move the water in the right direction and okay this isn't you know i don't want to make too much of this but i do think that there's something similar that we do spiritually right periodically it's helpful. And I think those of us who've, if you've been around for a little while, you probably do this in some way or another. You take a little test strip and you dip it in your heart and you kind of say like, how's it looking? And there are certain things, you know, in the pool, there's obviously, you know, hundreds and hundreds of different chemicals in there. You're measuring only four in in most of the test strips because there's four that really, you know, tell you a lot of what you need to know. And in our hearts, there's obviously, you know, countless things going on in our hearts. But I would say one of the things that's really helpful to measure would be our level of joy. Because I think if your level of joy is off, then it says something about the condition of your heart. There's something that you probably need to add to the mix, a change you could make, an adjustment you can make to try to help steer your heart in a better direction. So I would just ask you, this is this would be my, my kind of challenge for all of us today. To the practical to take with you. I would say to do a little check. You can dip it in your own heart, but even better, ask somebody around you. Ask someone who knows you well. Ask your spouse. Ask a good friend of yours. How's my level of joy? Does it really look like Jesus? And then think about what would it mean to move in that direction in your life? God's character is defined in part by being full of joy. God called his people of Israel to embrace lives of joy. Jesus showed it, showed us what it means to live a life of joy. And we have the example of the early church and certainly of Paul showing us that it's possible to live out that life in our lives. God is amazing. He's loved each of us intimately. He wants to bless us and use us in in, in incredible ways. But our job is we can't get so tied up in our plans or so focused on our little situation that we forget what God is doing. We have to remember that the way that we accomplish God's work in the world is not through our toil and grinding it out. It's through joy. And the way that we can have lives that are defined by joy is not being focused on our situation, but by focusing on who God is. Let's live lives like Jesus that are full of joy. Amen.